0: Let
1: me take you by the hand and lead you through the streets of... Edinburgh Festival Fringe Hello, and welcome to the first proper episode of the Ed Fringe podcast. This is the Spirit of the Fringe edition, just to give you some idea of the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. In this episode, I'll be talking to Izzy Sooty, Joe Wilkinson, Diane Morgan, Arthur Smith, PBH, the person that first started the Free Fringe... Nathan Caton, Earl Oakin, Tony Law, Simon Munnery, Martin Soane, who is part of The Greatest Show on Legs, Kate Copstick, one of the most well-known reviewers of The Fringe at the time, has been there year after year, Mervyn Stutter, who's been running a showcase show for over 30 years at The Fringe, and this is edited highlights of future interviews. So, without any more chat from me, Enjoy what all these Fringe Illuminati have to say about the spirit of the Fringe. I'll chat to you briefly at the end, but this is your first introduction to the Ed Fringe podcast and some of the little jewels and delights therein. Enjoy.
2: And I have to say one year... That was where I fell in love with Jack Stanhope, um, properly. I'd always, I'd always been an admirer. Uh, I love his stuff because I just love people who go for it. And there was, I can't remember what year, but he did a series of shows called The Unbookables with all kinds of strange and weird people who consider themselves to be kind of unbookable. And uh, that, to me, is a, is a perfect fringe comedy venue. Nobody, nobody. In fact, as soon as I assume complete control of the Fringe, no one will be allowed to use the the conference centre. No one will be allowed to use the McEwen Hall, which is opened again this year. (laughs) Nobody will be allowed to use any venue which is more than about 300 seats. And if possible, comedy will only be seen in small venues like the Tron. Slightly smelly, very badly air-conditioned, if at all. Uh, not Not a very great supply... Uh, of different kinds of beers, so people don't spend a lot of time at the bar. Ghastly smells on the way down the stairs. Terrible toilets, but a very intense experience where you are close enough for the comic to spit at you. And in the case of Duck Stanhope and the Unbookables, there was a lot of spit. I just remember... uh, um, Uh, Scott Kapura was on the bill one night that I saw and somebody got up and punched him. Doug Stanhope was basically being given all kinds of drugs by saddos in the audience and taking them all. And it was just... It's the kind of thing you never forget. You go and see some TV comic at the EICC, you're only going to remember it for five minutes, you'll probably remember mainly the ticket price. But the Tron, everybody should try and see a comedy show At the Tron. I mean, maybe it is evolution. Once upon a time, there was the Edinburgh Arts Festival, which begat the Fringe. And now the Fringe, well, it begat three fringes and five-pound fringes. And, you know, uh, if you want to look to the future of the proper Fringe, go to Peter Buckley Hill.
1: Mm.
2: Go to any of his venues. Again, like I say like, um, like the Tron, like even the caves, have, um, because there's always, you're, there's always the chance of finding your comic. Um, and that's, that's the best.
1: Yeah, discovering something yeah. new that is Discovering not, something, for something for yourself. Not been
2: sold to you, yeah, you know. discovering something for yourself, because they're the ones that you remember. Um, again, just off uh, the Royal Mile, uh, there's St Mary's Street which joins up with the Pleasants. And just on the corner of St. Mary's Street and the Royal Mile, there used to be a venue called St. Mary's Hall. Many, many years ago, a thousand years ago, I was producing a radio show at the Edinburgh Festival. Um, for uh, It was called Festival City Radio. It was Radio Force. They used to split their wavelength during Edinburgh, and I produced a two-hour uh, radio show every morning. Every weekday morning, I know, it was fantastic. I lost a stone and a half. But I met some fantastic people. And what I did, I keep saying this to reviewers, to punters, to everybody. Throw, maybe even throw away newspapers and everything and don't look at promotional material. Just go, oh, that sounds interesting. Oh, what about that? I don't know, it's... it's there's, there's something...
3: Up- I can't think of happy. I mean, in terms of I've like nearly won Perrier newcomer. That's great to go to the Perrier and being up for an award is brilliant. But for me, the the best times have been a great show. Uh, when you have a great show and you feel like you've really gone through, you, your audience are with you all the way. You've really bonded with them. You've really interacted. You've you've gone through an experience and and you're in some you know little room in Edinburgh. And I don't think anything beats that in comedy. I don't think any. I don't think doing two thousand people. or doing an arena I think there's there's that closest of going brilliant I've got people in they've come to see a show they haven't been ripped off because Edinburgh is full of shows that are garbage and charging money and people are you know feeling angry that they've wasted their time seeing it but when you really think you've really worked hard at something and usually you've sweated your arse off I've lost some weight in Edinburgh through sweating in hot venues Um, that's the biggest just going off and going did a brilliant job tonight but it, the truth is, it, you know, I do say it's all about, you know, getting things out of it, Edinburgh. But you wouldn't go if it wasn't. The, the main reason is to go and do a show you love and express yourself. And, and you know, that's, that's the biggest achievement for me. That's always been. And I know you're meant to love it and enjoy it for what it is. But for me, it's always been a little bit industry because I've had a family quite young. Mm. I've always been in Edinburgh going... <laughs> I, I can't really party. It's not really fun. I'm here to work, and my wife hates me being here. And you know, and yeah, they yeah. come up for a bit of it, but um, so I yes, I'm a bit of a I am a bit of a yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of an Edinburgh grump, really. I suppose, but I, I I love the shows. I love what it makes, what happens creatively from putting a show together and doing that.
2: Well, that um, you know, I I'm a Greek one. And saying, "Oh, don't worry, because it'll all be fine. Nothing's going to happen." But then, uh, further along, past, I have to say, there's one place which I, I have an abiding memory. As you're going along the the Cowgate from the Underbelly, you go under the bridge, uh, avoiding the pigeon shit and the pee and all the other bodily fluids, which you'll find there. Just on your right hand side, there's a pub. Uh, I can't remember what it's called now, but that was where I first met Malcolm Hardy. I was uh, doing a little uh, piece for Scottish television, I think it was, uh, in character, uh, uh, a a lady called uh, Madge. And uh, she was from um, Morningside, lovely lady. And uh, Madge is actually the lady who was in Dicing with Death. And I met Malcolm Hardy, and the director framed the shot, I interviewed him, with Malcolm standing, uh, legs kind of apart. And you saw me through his open legs, just past his dangling testicles. (laughs) Because I don't know if if the people on your tour realise the the enormity and just the sheer wonder of Malcolm Hardy's testicles. They were like two rugby balls in a a couple of string bags. Quite extraordinary. And that's that's where I first encountered both Malcolm and his testicles at the same time, needless to say, uh, and interviewed him. Uh, A legend. Almost... I I would put him on a par with Arthur Smith in terms of fringe legends. Um, But that... Now those... those, uh, and little clubs there on the right-hand side, just as you come under the bridge. There's one called Opium. There's they're now coming back and their venues again, once going. Because when I when I came up, even 1991, I came up with Dicing with Death, Future of Comedy, The Independent. Mm-hmm. Ah, that shows you how much store to set by a review. You know, I, I if I uh, that's still on my CV. How wrong was that? Not the future of comedy, but. Um, I I was there, and that was the year I felt the cold wind of change. Um, 1991, I letter-setted my own posters, and we photocopied them, A4, and myself and Paul Cawley, uh, who were Dicing with Jazz, we went out fly-posting at night, and we were physically threatened by Avalon's postering team because we more or less covered up David Baddiel's big toe with our tiny poster. And that was when you felt oh, it's all going a bit Pete Tong, because the the big boys came in. And I know some people would say that's progress, and you can't stop progress, and you can't stop change. Um, But we definitely felt that something was changing. And and if you're down on the free fringe, what you need is the courage of your convictions, is the courage of your show. You know, um, if you're coming up, Uh, because you want to be on telly I don't want to see you I don't want to see your show if you're coming up because you want to be a stand-up comic and you want to take what you can get from a month of all kinds of people seeing you under the worst of circumstances um, then I will come and see you and uh, I'll meet up with you and I'll try and get you a review in The Scotsman Um, You know, and, and the people that I found last year
3: Yes, TV, TV things do count. Yeah. Shoving it's very shallow, but you're shoving it on your posters and they go, Oh, you can't be you know yeah. it gives you that thing of, Oh, you must be okay. Yeah. To some comics it also is a red rag to a bull that you're a sellout shiny floor comedian, which I I'm getting really annoyed by and I very soon am really? gonna write like, I'm gonna write sort of rant on Chortle, I think, about it. <laughs> because I just don't I don't think there are I don't think there's as big a difference between those people that are on the big Shows like Life at the Apollo, and the rest, and people who think they're incredibly alternative and different and dangerous. Yeah. There are a few who genuinely are. Yeah. There's a lot who <laughs> there's a there's a lot who are, you know, telling the same sort of gags but with funny hair.
4: Yeah. I, don't, I didn't remember it was Tony Law. I just thought it was a space Elvis. You yeah, know. Yeah. There's a lot of prejudice against space <laughs> Elvises. I mean, a lot. Some of it justified, of course. Yeah. <laughs> They do, they come to our festivals, steal yeah. our jobs. <laughs> but, uh... irradiate us. <laughs> yeah. But, uh,
1: well, thank you very much Simon. Well, my pleasure. Thank you very much thank indeed. You
4: very... Um... We'll, we'll drop you back at the station then. Thank you.
5: It was, uh, in a way it was when I first, because initially when I went to it, we were doing shows and joining in, and, uh, but this is when I began to think of just you know, blowing it apart, doing utterly different things doing things that, you know, you could only really do in uh, And that's what started that, and that's when the late nights sort of started, which became kind of a little bit of a kind of cultish thing in it. And I still do, because I did one last year, I think. But, I mean, although they're not quite the same, so I don't drink anymore or take the same number of drugs. So I'm never kind of as fearless as I uh, used to be, which is not bad. Looking back on it, it's a miracle I never fucking killed anybody. Is that, but that... there was one incident I remember, well, I was standing on this thing, and I used to pay people. I'd spend money on this thing. It wasn't like a profit no thing on the night run. So I would, give, I would offer money for someone to come out and take their clothes off and sing Scotland the Brave. So I'd someone like, standing on a wall doing it, pretty pissed. And then a the woman shouted, this is sexist. what you should offer women money. I said, well, fair enough. So she did. this woman got out got out the top of started singing. And the next day I looked at this wall we were standing on and I noticed there was like a 40-foot drop behind me. And I thought, fucking hell! I mean, these were pissed people, including me. It would only have taken you know, someone would have died, and I'd have spent the rest of my life thinking, Jesus! I mean, I don't know if I'd have been done for manslaughter. I suppose not, because it wasn't. Yeah, you know, I mean, it was their idea, but uh, still, the great, like the yeah, the I mean, it was dangerous. Like that, it's it was like, dangerous, yeah. and there was another time, I St Giles Cathedral, so, so named after Giles Brandreth. Uh, and round the back of that cathedral is where the lock-up was, where we freed Nelson Mandela from prison. That's just sort of on that little courtyard around the back. Uh, the, the, but, yeah, yeah you're so on, then, all right. So then you're on the cow gate. Mm. Well, of course, I remember the gilded balloon, the original gilded balloon, before, before it, burned it burned down. down. Mm. Uh, that was probably something to do with the burning down, looking back of it. <laughs> no. Somehow, implicated yeah. somehow. I mean, that was the quintessential venue in its day, and that was at a time when the, the festival was big, but it wasn't so big that pretty much every comic used to uh, meet up at a gilded balloon late at night. And there was a show on in the sort of theatre bit, but then there was the bar, so you didn't have to see the show anymore. But you just knew you'd meet all the other comics in the bar. Now there are too many comics, you know. You couldn't do that now. It wouldn't be possible. with anyway, it wouldn't, it wouldn't follow. There's it. too many comics. You'd all film all in one fucking room. But then it was pretty much that was the part, that was the last time there was a sort of utter centre to the comedy side of Edinburgh. In uh, and there were wild shows. I mean, it didn't used to. Well, I think it's the same now. The other guild, I don't find that's the same, but. It, yeah, the shows didn't used to end till 'til four AM or something. I mean it was insane. And there was some you know <laughs> there was some fun nights down there. I tell you what, it
6: would have it would have felt like a waste of our lives if we if we weren't so damn successful now
7: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
6: Otherwise you think, what have I done with a
8: decade? Well uh, <laughs> I always think I was um, think about Tim Vine's poster that oh, poster it yeah. was the best, best thing, thing I ever I've saw
9: ever seen in
8: Edinburgh it was Tim yeah. Vine's poster you know, a massive the biggest the longest biggest poster you've ever seen awesome. uh, with a massive picture of his face and they said Tim Vine <laughs> and underneath will not be appearing at this year's Edinburgh <laughs> Festival Incredible. and everyone was talking about yeah, it yeah. it was so well done
6: I also remember the following year that Danny Boy had a billboard on there and uh, I remember thinking that was cost you know, thousands, and then
7: someone had defaced it in under two days. And I was just thinking, oh god. If you
1: if you go up to Edinburgh, I don't know if you find this, but that it's a your life. Almost beats to the drum of Edinburgh. Yeah. In in some ways, it's almost the like a school
3: term. Yeah. Yes,
10: exactly. I've always expressed it as being like exams. Yeah. Mm. It's the focal point of the year, and you work towards it. You accelerate to, with the encroaching panic of the deadline. Mm. And you you perform well mm. or badly or you know. Mm yourself down or you excel your, your own <laughs> expectations or, you know. do you ever have a kind of uh, an appraisal afterwards each year yes of course you, you i mean let
1: yourself down then. <laughs> yeah
10: uh yeah so that is sort of important i try always start with good intentions to go and see lots of shows and i'm always glad when i've gone and seen something but i'm not very virtuous i think i'm quite i get lazy and i sort of feel like i don't want to sit in a black room but that's a mistake whenever i go and see things i am always feel happy and it's also very good to remind yourself uh, that other people's hours are full of hard work and so on and so yeah. you're getting too precious about your own because you the, this is the converse of the or whatever the, yeah. what I was saying before is that performers get too close to their show and sort of feel like nobody else has gone through this uh, process yeah. and of course that's nonsense and um, you, you know while with the with the more venal side of one's nature one wants to be raised above others and, yeah. and uh, given yeah. prizes and, and so on but uh Generally speaking, it's a much happier festival if you retain the sense of being in an artistic community of like-minded people, because then you feel community spirit, which mm. is a warm, fuzzy feeling, and it's, it's good. A supportive feeling. Yeah, the Free Fringe is, is growing now, and that is really the fringe. Mm. That is had, the fringe. That's the fringe, yeah. The uh, new fringe. The new fringe, yeah. Mm. And uh, it's, uh, I suppose a lot of it is rubbish. But it's got that kind of atmosphere that the so-called friends used to have, which is that you don't, uh, you're not heavily out of pocket. So you feel your expectations are medium. Yeah. And you can be slightly disappointed
11: without being angry or slightly <laughs> pleasantly
10: surprised. It's kind of...
11: I had no idea what it was. I'd vaguely heard of it. I had a manager who'd also vaguely heard of it. Mm. I had no idea the way it works. He's 83. And he was thinking in terms of doing a show in a theatre. And thus he was using theatre speak and he said, let's do a split week, meaning you do some days in one week and some days in another week, and assuming that people come up for one week, we get like the people who came for one week and then another lot will come for the next week. It didn't work like that. We were at the wrong venue and the wrong time of day with the wrong show, far too late. Everything was wrong. And I think my first audiences were nine, eleven, 11 and 4, or something of that nature. Pretty standard for the festival. Well, yes, but, uh, but in those days I could do something about it because in those days something wonderful existed. In fact, this was one of my favourite things at the Fringe, and needless to say it doesn't exist anymore. It was run by the Fringe Society itself in what is now just known as TV at Row. And it was called The Fringe Club. Apparently one year they lost a lot of money on it to the extent that there was a rumour of it actually bankrupting everything. Oh. Mm. And then they just it stopped it dead and didn't do anything that was a real fringe club again. They bought something called the Fringe Club and it's a complete waste of time, you know. Celebrities giving lectures about why they're so famous and you know, that sort of crap. Mm. But a real fringe club, where what was wonderful about it was it, they had a sort of self booking cabaret at night. Mm. And when I said self booking, there was a school exercise book. You put your name in it, you're on. Mm. And it started about 11 and it went on till about 2. I think that was, roughly speaking, when it operated. And I learnt in time that the best time to be on was about midnight so that people have got time to come in, but they haven't got completely drunk and out of their minds yet. Anyway, somebody gave me a heads up about this fringe club. I should try that because that's where I get an audience. So I went along, spoke to the man who then ran it, and he saw me, you know, just some bloke on a guitar, and he tried to show me this small part to perform, which was behind the refectory, which later on became known as the Bear Pit because it got quite dodgy performing. But as soon as I saw the top horn, it was giant, I thought, that's for me, and he looked a bit doubtful because people think that because it's just me and a guitar that I like playing in small intimate places no I like big theatres this was an amazing top hall, and as it turned out with fantastic uh, sound mm. I've got a wonderful venue I went on and it sounds terrible me saying this but I pretty much took the roof off mm. so my first four days my, my venue held 120 I remember mm. my first four days at the Edinburgh Fringe ever when something like eleven four nine 4, 9, 128. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and what went in between was the Fringe Club. Mm. And in those days you could do things like that. It was down to you and your talent and word of mouth. There was no real hype. There were no professional PR people. There were very few people who'd ever been on television. And it was, and you'd take chances. You'd go out and you'd try, I don't know, a Bolivian tree flute ensemble one night and uh, a Bulgarian comedy sketch show another. You just didn't know. You just, and it was really cheap. It was like two or three quid a show. There were no showbiz values whatsoever, which cut your expenses down to a yeah. minimum. Mm. That's what, it's a fringe festival. Yeah. After all, you remember a fringe festival that means A festival not for people who were successful, not for people who could do a real festival, but people who weren't famous to come and show people what they can do and people can go and see them or not. That's what a fringe festival is supposed to be. If you look at the history of it, in 1947 the Edinburgh Festival started and one theatre company said to themselves, they've got all this stuff for all the rich, posh people, what about us? I think it was just literally one theatre company which went up there and did a play. And that was the Fringe and that was how it started. By the time I did it, of course, the Fringe dwarfed the actual main festival. Um, What's it called now? The Gilded Balloon. The Gilded Balloon and the big one, which is always the big venue, the the one in George Street, the assembly assembly rooms. Those three got together. They never were one company by any means. What they did was they marketed themselves together by running a vintage sort of pre war bus, and you could get on literally get on the bus, which was a free bus, and you could go from one big venue to the other,
10: mm. like a big triangle. And it wouldn't cost you anything,
11: but it immediately took you to the other three, two venues, and of course in so doing avoided all the everybody else's venue and suddenly i remember they didn't tell me for a long time but it it i kept a little book of my ticket sales and i'd already done the french for about 10 years by then and it was amazing how year on year monday week two sold within two or three of the same number of tickets tuesday we got a certain amount and it was the actual graph, if you did that, it was almost identical for year and year and year and year. All of a sudden, 92 hit, I think it was 92, could be 93, I don't somewhere around there, the three big venues. And when I looked at my receipts afterwards, I found that everything was exactly the same shape in terms of the graph, but it had dropped by 30%. So they'd sucked a third of my audience out of my doors simply because nobody was bothering to walk anywhere. Okay, That's the first thing that went wrong, for her saying it to me once. it was a w- Anyway, mm. so one night, for a fresh-faced American stand-up, who obviously, as many American stand-ups don't do, had done no research. Mm. Thus, his first line turned out to be his last, <laughs> which I'm sure he hadn't planned. Unfortunately, his first line was... Hi everybody, it's great to be here in England. <laughs> oh dear. And he came off bruised and injured, still not knowing why it happened and I had to explain to him where he was.
0: <laughs> I mean to anyone who hasn't been to Edinburgh, it is an extraordinary thing and I think even now as someone who is sort of becoming part of the veteran territory of someone, you know, I'm not a Richard Herring who's done sort of 18 back-to-back shows but you sort of uh, it it has become normal to me to expect a large-ish town to be taken over for a month and that i think the first time you do that is, is is extraordinary that that you don't believe that literally every room every venue every shop every church every street is touched by this 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 festival and it it's it really shouldn't work, and I think it is unique. And uh, even if you look at all these other uh, festivals, whether it's the Leicester Festival or the Glasgow Festival, which I've never been, I've been to Leicester Festival a few times. It's not the same thing. It's you know just a lot of shows are putting on. This takes over right right down to obviously famously the the Royal Mar, which you're you're I'm sure you'll talk about. With just the street performers. I mean, it's like uh, having, you know, a, a Covent Garden in the middle of a fringe festival, mm. in the middle of. Back then, of course, there was the film and the TV festivals as well, which I think both have moved now. Well, that's the great thing about Edinburgh as well. Uh, it's coming from London, which is largely flat. Uh, I went to university in Manchester, which is very flat. I grew up in. Uh, Hertfordshire, which uh, is is pretty flat, and you suddenly get to Edinburgh, and you've got this 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 town that's on so many different levels and that's just visually, aesthetically very interesting and I got told something which I don't know is true by a friend of mine who went to Edinburgh University and he said the term skyscrapers was first coined in Edinburgh, everyone would say New York, because if you're coming in the new town and, you, and you'll and know if you come in the new town you sort of, uh, if you're walking up towards the Roma, you come up these hills and just before it then drops down below down into princess street gardens before then climbing back up to uh, the royal mar where you have these sort of seven eight nine ten story buildings and they look like they scrape the sky and this is where that that phrase came from i was told that may be really bullshit
11: particularly
9: just the camaraderie and being around all the people you work with and i don't yeah. know it was, it was like um just fun to socialize and have a social life. Yeah. Because most of the time you're just on the road, mm. so to see everyone's exciting. I like that aspect. Mm. Bumping into people across town, I enjoy that. Mm. I like bumping into people. Yeah. Um. So I'm pretty antisocial most of the rest of the time. So it's good for a month to come out of your shell yeah. and be polite. Yeah. Um. Again, just seeing the odd show. Um. Yeah, my wife and I had a lot of fun in the Gilda Balloon. The best thing about the Gilda Balloon those two years was socialising. That bar on the roof, can't
1: remember what it's called? The, uh, the yeah, I know, it's not the library bar, it's the loft bar. Yeah, yeah.
9: that was when everyone used to go there. Oh, it was just a lot of fun, mm. sitting outside on a roof with all your friends. It was, yeah, yeah. it was glamorous. Yeah.
8: There are so many things that aren't to do with shows, like one year... I think maybe in about 2008 or earlier, maybe 06, I went to see this guy doing um, a rendition of David Bowie songs. And um, he was a good singer, but he was quite sort of threatening And he came out and was like, ''I love Bowie, so I'm going to do some of his songs.'' And then he was... um, He was good. It was kind of like um, something that you'd never see anywhere else because he had quite a strong Cockney accent. And then there was this girl in front of us who started swaying around in her seat, and then she was sick, like projectile vomited, all across the row in front of her. But their backs, obviously, because we're sitting, so they didn't notice. And we were sitting in one row behind her, and I couldn't. I thought I was going to die laughing, which sounds awful, but it was just this horrible. Wasn't really laughter. It was like this hysteria because I was thinking someone's going to touch the back of their head or their shoulder in a minute and think, what's this cold stuff? Oh my. And then that happened, and then this sort of um, ripple went down the row, the sick covered row, and then they all turned around and were like, what's going on? And the, the guy singing the Bowie songs was oblivious to all of this, of course. So um, then um, it, the show had to be stopped, and um, this guy appeared in the doorway with a mop, and this woman, this really posh woman shouted out, someone's been sick. And then this guy proceeded to mop up this sick. But the guy continued to sing these Bowie songs throughout it. The show never stopped, even though he was aware of what was going on and everyone else was. He just carried on like with this kind of wartime... Um, I don't know, spirit. Yeah, so that was great. I did alternative comedy, Memorial Society, which is this sort of collective run by John Luke Roberts and Tom Tuck and has a lot of a pool of different acts who perform there and we did a show in the Pleasant's Dome and um, it just felt everything seemed to come together perfectly it's just nothing really on paper it would just look like a gig but the audience understood what we were trying to do it's quite an experimental gig the audience really went with it it was on quite late at night the audience was just the right level of drunk Um, And everything that everyone did, it was like they were all in their element. And I looked around and I thought, oh, these are all like my best friends in comedy and we're all on together. And we all do stuff that's sometimes a bit offbeat and, you know, but we've all kind of found each other. It was just a really great moment. And um, sometimes that happens, the audience... That's the best th- thing about stand-up, when it goes well, it's like there's a kind of communion, I think, between the audience and the performer or performers, and that's what you want every time, and you might only get it, like, one time out of 50, perfectly, really, where everything's right from the beginning, and you can't quite put your finger on why, but then that's when you sort of find this extra 20% within yourself that you didn't know you had.
7: Uh, another of his scams was the, the, the Scotsman review uh, because when you're at the Fringe The the, the big thing is to get a, a re- good review in The Scotsman uh, It doesn't matter who reads it If you, just, if you can quote The Scotsman and Put stars on your poster, you're away So everyone wants a, a good review in The Scotsman Malcolm was doing a show That wasn't doing particularly well um, And so he thought How do I how do I perk this up a bit I know I'll get a review in The Scotsman But of course you can't guarantee to get a good review in The Scotsman So he and Arthur Smith uh, Sat down and wrote their own review uh, and they found out how the Scotsman reviewers uh, delivered their copy to the, the Scotsman uh, news desk, uh, which was basically handing it over a table to someone. Uh, and so they they wrote this glow, fairly glowing review of Malcolm's show, uh, Arthur Smith and Malcolm, and then handed it in to the Scotsman uh, with at the bottom the name of the Scotsman's one one of the Scotsman's great uh, comedy reviewers. And sure enough, the next day it was printed in the Scotsman. Uh, and the, the the figures went up. The bums on seats went up. Charlie Chuck's an interesting comedian. I mean, the first time I saw him was on a on a videotape because Malcolm Hardy and I were doing a show whether the gong show the rip-off gong show for no gay television and we were auditioning at and looking for acts, and he'd sent in a a a vhs and i watched the vhs while i was ironing uh, and i stopped ironing because it was so bizarre i thought this man's completely barking mad Uh, and so i had some dealings with charlie chuck i took him up to edinburgh for the first time Uh, and i think it was the first time he went up when i took him up uh, that he was on at a venue and he wasn't really used to the festival, so he wasn't used to the fact that you got very low audiences if you were unknown. He was totally unknown, and so he was getting sometimes, you know, two people coming in for a show, and he was getting very um, uh, depressed about this and thought he might go home. I had to go down to London for a week in the middle. And and told him whatever you do, don't go home. You just play to the audience. Uh, but if you don't know who's in the audience, it could be Steven Spielberg. That one person could be Steven Spielberg or or his talent spotter. And he and he he didn't go home. Uh, but one day he played to I think it was four people, uh, and two of those were were uh, looking for acts for the Vic and Bob show. Uh, The Smell of Reason Mortimer and as a result of that he got I think two series with them and that made his name with uh, the greater British public Uh, and if if he'd actually done the sensible thing and uh, given up playing to ridiculously small audiences he would never have had that break so um, I always say you you have to play to anyone uh, uh, anyone who's in the audience if it's an audience of one you don't know who that one person may be I'd heard, um, little things about the Edinburgh Festival, like, you know, like all comedians went there. It was a place to be seen, to get noticed and stuff. Um, and people said, you you should go at least once just to experience it. But I didn't realise how crazy it was until I actually got there and I came at the station and it's just like, it's like a carnival, like just things happening anywhere and everywhere. Just people in your face, like hitting you with flyers. Um, it was, it was mad. Was
6: on my very first fringe as I got out the train I climbed into George's taxi it was an ordinary taxi but he was called George it's not George's taxi it was George and he ran. He was, he was the driver of the taxi and he was a friendly Scott and we were chatting and he said oh is it your first time hey, hey, and through the windows and I said yeah I said this is me and I passed the fly. I said look you're the first person I've flied in Edinburgh ever and he said, oh, fine. Eh? Then he turned up and he came along to my 20th gala show with his wife. He'd be an old man by now. And and I and I saw him and I recognised him instantly because he has been a couple of times previously, I, I think. And I, and I said to the audience on the 20th gala show, that's George and told that little story. Of course, the place just gives him the round of applause. He stands, he takes his moment. But, that, yeah, that's my best leafleting moment. And I was doing... It was Gulf War time, first one, 1990. 91, something like that. And um, I had a lovely little song uh, about the Americans in uh, uh, fighting the Gulf War. And it was kind of, it's a holy war. And it had a kind of a, a country of Western... It's a holy war, it's a holy war. It's a crazy dance of death. It's a holy war, it's a holy war. It'll take away your breath. And... Uh, Dozy Doe for W, and he'll, uh, and I'll see yeah. Dozy do for W, and I'll see you in Baghdad. Oh that's the Second Gulf War, isn't it? Anyway, something like that. And um, I'll see you in Baghdad. It's a holy war. It's a holy war. It's a holy war. Gee head, right? And I got a laugh. Quite clever, I thought. I'm doing this song, and halfway through, uh, and in between verses, the whole of the gun thing goes off in the tattoo. Brought the house down, of course. You know, I dissolve. Uh, Everyone laughs like drains. And I'm thinking, I look at my watch, and I said, that's 9 o'clock, isn't it? Tomorrow night, I'm going to time this song. And that's every night my attempt, without the audience knowing, was to time the song that I got the tattoo guns at the same point. And I went up in 1975. And um, it was just great, because it was very fringy. It was... um, I remember uh, Miles Kington, who used to write the the witty, humorous column in The Independent, uh, was able to provide me on the 50th of the Fringe, I think it was, um, because I wanted to do something on the celebration of that particular anniversary. He provided me with an A4 sheet of paper, typed... Uh, and it had the shows and it wasn't the first fringe but it was very close to the first fringe and you could get them all on a sheet of A4 paper now, I think it's 2800 this year and it's a telephone director. I mean, when con- I mean, it arrived in the post it's considerably thicker this year frighteningly thicker really um, because the competition increases obviously with more shows yes the the fringe the comedy end of the fringe which can dominate because it's good publicity it's simple comedians are one person it's all it's all very portable and and of course sometimes there's publicity off the back of what they're saying because they're being incredibly naughty rude offensive whatever uh, or perceived to be let me put it that way um but there are people, managements now take their comedians up there purely to drive them towards TV. People are doing chat shows to try and get a chat show on TV. There's so many of the performances in the, the comedy variety end of the market, which is just looking for television and uh, making the career bigger in that way. Um, and yet, if you sometimes look at the older performers who were sort of around and made their names um, uh, in earlier days in the 80s and early 90s, who are still up there, it's come back year after year because they like it. That, their stuff and where they play and how they play uh, is as much in touch with the spirit of the Fringe as some of the young 18 year olds or whatever, turning up with a fresh, uh, non-career based kind of, this is what we've created. This is what we want to show you. They, the same sort of attitudes. There might be more energy in the younger ones than the older ones, but essentially the spirit is there that it's about being at the festival Maybe, you know, do something different uh, Risk a little, I don't know, things like that uh, Because the middle stuff that's heading for TV Will not risk It can't risk because that might mean they upset somebody And then the TV won't touch them uh,
4: What was that? You got arrested in Hunter Square you said. I, I got arrested in Hunter Square It was the end of uh, Arthur Smith's Royal Mile uh, Tour, alternative tour of the Royal Mile Which he used to do late night On uh, Saturday night, last Saturday festival 2am And the year before uh, I, I'd arrived late and uh, Arthur was slagging off the Germans. So I decided to be German and heckle him <laughs> as a German. Uh, and that went quite well, uh, as I remember. So, But that was a sort of a persona I developed of being Heinrich. and I, So I used to just slag him off from uh, from the German perspective, as I imagined it. <laughs> anyway, the next year Arthur says, oh, should you come back and do that, be Heinrich again, do the German thing? I said, All right, yeah, I've got another gig. I'll try and get there. So I got there about halfway through and uh did the same thing again. Was uh, so he was like the leader of his uh, of his gang of late night uh, revelers, and I was uh, the anti Arthur, so sort of always having having a go at him. Um, and uh, the, we got down to Hunter Square. We'd gone, come down the Royal Mile. We we're in Hunter Square, and the show was just finishing. Arthur pulled his trousers up. That's how you know. <laughs> uh, and he was he was just wandering off. And then I saw two policemen, uh, and I, I was wandering off as well with my wife and then we saw two policemen barging their way through the crowd really quite aggressively, and I ran up to them and said, uh, you can't arrest Arthur, because they were going heading towards him, and one of them said, we don't want to arrest him, we just want to talk to him, and he sort of shoved me to one side, and for some reason that made me think, all oh, right, it's not serious then. <laughs> OK, so they're barging their way through the middle of this crowd, it's about 100, 200 people, quite a lot of people, and of course the quickest way to get uh, around a crowd is go around the outside rather than try to push your way through people. Anyway, so I ran around the outside, got to Arthur first, uh, and he had his megaphone with him. I took just took the megaphone off him, thinking, right, the police will talk to him. I can then restart the show. I didn't know what I was going to say, but something in the see your leader has been taken. It would have been, it would have been. I know, didn't know what it was like an encore for me. It was a show, it was still going on. Anyway, so I took the um, uh, megaphone. At that point, two arms just sort of clapped themselves around my waist and holding my arms in a bit like a rugby tackle, but not strong enough to bring me to the ground. And this was my mistake. At that moment, I thought. Oh, I, sh- I kind of knew it was the police, but it didn't seem serious. So I threw the megaphone into the crowd, hoping someone would catch it. Like it was, they wanted the <laughs> megaphone. They can't have that. Uh, it, the megaphone just clattered loudly to the ground because obviously everyone could see, everyone apart from me could see the situation was serious. If there's a policeman holding someone, you don't grab the thing that the man uh, being held by the police has uh, thrown into the air for the for the revolution. No, it wasn't a revolution. It's very really much like that. It was a show. Uh, and anyway, at that point, of course, the you know, policeman went went a bit mad, well, you know, lost his temper. And uh, they threw me all over the place, slammed me against the wall, turned around, put cuffs on, tightened the cuffs a bit more so that they cut the skin and you're bleeding. And, you go, and it hurt. And then um, he was stuffing me into a, a police car. He, he never, at no point did he say you're under arrest. I just sort of worked that <laughs> out later in <laughs> retrospect. So he, he put me in a car. And as he was doing that, Janet said, "You can't arrest him. I'm his husband." <laughs> I, uh, and I had to, uh, this I had the presence of mind to say, "No, Janet, you're my wife." And they slammed the door, and then uh, and the, then the crowd uh, correctly uh, surrounded the police car. I wouldn't let it go, and the police don't know what to do. And I'm sitting in the back with my hands bleeding. Uh, at which point John Feely, a street performer from the old days, used to do a double act with Andre Vincent, I believe. Anyway, great bloke, uh, lives in Amsterdam, or did. Anyway, he slides over the bonnet and goes, Simon, what do you want us to do? <laughs> and I, I shouted to the window, can you get out of the way? They're just doing their job. Because <laughs> I, I thought, this is, I want this to end quickly. I want the cuffs off. And I thought, and then they drove us out out of there. Uh, John Feely cleared, it, cleared away. Oh, swan action. Hey. See, this is what you pay for. Yeah. You know, two swans fighting. A lot of that goes on. Sometimes you have to break them up. Anyway, so they drove us out of town, uh, a Bit somewhere it was dark, and they said, what's all this about then? Is it publicity? And I said, no. It's the last night of the festival. What the world I want fucking publicity! <laughs> and I, and I, that's when I started getting angry, Like they thought I was doing some publicity. Like, I didn't think I should have been arrested. I don't think so. I might have done anything wrong. Once you're in the police station, then it's... Um, you know you're treated like a criminal surprisingly <laughs> uh, you know it's not innocent until proven guilty not in the police station uh, they took the cuffs off they had to sign loads of papers and not look at anyone and sign loads of papers again uh, and I said oh I've got um, someone to give me a lovely bit of marijuana in my and I had it in my wallet I was saving it for later just, just that a got a so I've got some marijuana in my wallet anyway because you've got in want wallet That probably means you've got a load more up your ass. You know what it's like. You've got to keep a little bit in your wallet; the rest <laughs> stuffed up your ass for safety. Anyway, so that means that they can take you to a cell where you have to strip naked, and there's no um, there's no cameras in the cell, which you're very well aware of whether you're in a place where there's cameras watching you, and there's some sort of control. Anyway, so the bloke comes in with his rubber gloves, but uh, he I just I was, beginning to, I was losing my temper now, uh, and uh, it's quite a heckle. <laughs> quite, yeah, I was getting <laughs> heckled heckling now. There's a lesson to all heckling. You end up with a policeman's <laughs> arm up your ass. No, but he didn't. He never did it. He, he d- decided not to stick his hand up my ass. But he, you know.
1: It was a threat. It was a visible eye. Yeah, it could. was just
4: a p- part of crushing you down. Yeah. I mean, anyway, then I six hours in, in the cell. Uh, thought of a title of a novel, did a press up, and uh, came out <laughs> the next morning, and Arthur was there. But I, I did lose my temper after that. And then. The, the next night, I couldn't sleep in the cell, and then afterwards I was kind of this boiling anger thing. And the next night, mm. I was doing my last show at the uh, Big Top on the Meadows, mm. uh, the small Big Top. There were two Big Tops that year. Uh, and they were demolishing the Big Big Top and all the sort of infrastructure around it, uh, ready to, you know, so my, I was the last show on. Uh, and as I was walking across the field, there was a woman walking towards me, holding a amnesty sash and a tin because so I'd met someone from Amnesty early in the festival and they said, uh, oh, if you could... Uh, no, and I said, I'll collect money for you, no problem, just give us a session. And they sent it to a pigeonhole, which I didn't know I had until it was being closed. So anyway, so, that, so my show was entirely about what it's like to... I can't remember it at all, but all I did was go on and on about what it's like to be in a cell and how unpleasant that is and how <laughs> awful the police are. Oh, are there any police in? I was very, very angry just letting off steam and, quite a lot of people That well, the end of my career to be honest but uh, I've carried on nevertheless no one notices uh, but at the end of it I just collected money manically from every single person who was in my audience in this tin and then I just carried on I was just I had a sash I had a tin I went around collecting money for Amnesty manically it was the most money Amnesty International I ever had in one tin uh, and the reason was because after about a couple of hours I realised it was filling up with coins and that I didn't want any more coins I want notes yeah. and so I went and all the free parties I and mean, I basically mugged people I, was, I remember I was holding this journalist from the Daily Mail by his neck going I want notes from you <laughs> notes and anyway, he gave me notes everyone gave me notes I was, I was, you know, and I ended up at 5am you had the passion to kind of I was really yeah. pretty much a big fan of Amnesty international that night uh people have been prison wrongly for six hours and I ended up uh, back at the police station where they'd arrested me and I wanted to talk to the policeman that arrested me because uh, one of them was nice the other one was uh, very unpleasant uh, anyways, oh they're not on duty uh, so I was outside just, and the policemen arrived and I was trying to get money off policemen uh, with, uh, as they got out of their police cars back at the police station and obviously none of them were, were willing and eventually the one of the men that had arrested me the nice one did arrived back so they, they lied when they said uh, they're off duty tonight Mm. but they must yeah so anyway I ended up in the uh, foyer of the police station just shouting at the camera but uh, well, they abandoned it they abandoned the front desk they, just, they all went <laughs> backstage were you uh, alone at this time yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. I just just, uh, I was quite fired up I was trying to collect money for having this so I've got a sash I've got a tin do you want to get some money do you, what it's like to be in a cell you got any idea <laughs> talking to the police about that yeah, they, they, was, anyway they abandoned it but so I just ended up shouting at this camera for ages and ages eventually this older uh, Scottish policeman who looked like Mr Mackay from Porridge. Mm. Except with a white white tash and white hair. He came out he came out and walked towards me and said, uh, have you got a licence to collect money? <laughs> uh, <laughs> a licence? <laughs> have you got a licence? I said, No you've got no license. <laughs> and then I realized, all right, I'm going to get arrested again at 5 o'clock. I just don't want to. So I started backing away going, just you try it, son. Just you, well, he's an old man, just you try it, son. Just try it. and all more. Then I ran, just ran, ran, and that was over. That's finished. Right. He was waiting outside though. Yeah. Good on him. Well. Was, was he waiting for you outside? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. came out, went back to his house, glass of champagne, dawn, great. <laughs> okay, yeah. nice, God bless him. And he came out, and he was, for the trial, I had a trial really oh it's a pain in the arse you'd say okay so I've got to fly up just to say my name in court or somehow get there and then um, when we drove up actually, we got a ferry to Holland Uh, and then uh, you've got to get all your witnesses together and fly them up Mm. um, and uh, hire a lawyer if you don't hire a lawyer that slows down the court system that annoys the judge even more Mm. so uh, that costs you 800 quid and uh, money to fly people up Custer bomb And it hangs over you for ages And you know And if you get done uh, Guilty Then that meant You couldn't go to America ever I had no desire to go to America But the idea is I wouldn't be allowed to Because yeah, yeah. of this So anyway The court case uh, my, my lawyer was very good He, he made mincemeat of the two policemen Because one policeman described Basically he was re- attending a riot And the other one said There were some people Milling about <laughs> so that, that was the big difference And the reason it turned out Which you didn't know But why they were angry Or that one particular was angry Someone had stolen his hat <laughs> not, not, not one of us. Not me. You know anyone? Around, but That's why he lost his. Gentleman. Somebody was going to pay. Yeah. So he lost his. And Simon. And Munro. he managed to pass that on yeah. to me. Um, uh, and then, uh, and all my witnesses, uh, uh, you know. Said more or less the same thing you know, it was 3am there was about 100 people Arthur's, Arthur Smith who's by far the best witness but he did contradict everything all the other witnesses said. but he was totally believable you know, it was 200 people it was a police van not a car it was, all the little details were wrong mm. but the gist of it of, of what happened he got across very well mm. and uh, so not guilty uh, so I was delighted absolutely and thank Arthur for supporting me for that and uh, all my other witnesses Ian Shuttleworth Um but, and then afterwards I said, well, so uh, will I get some of that money back then? Or, uh, no. Not only that, but don't mention it on stage in Edinburgh, will you?
1: And there you go. Thanks for listening to uh, this summary of different people's idea of the spirit of the fringe over the years. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I th- the interviews that are coming up are great and they're a really good. Uh, all of those little snippets were a really good, kind of taster for what is forthcoming upcoming on the ed fringe podcast if you want to uh, sign up for updates and also to get extra video and unedited versions of interviews in the future uh, go to patreon forward slash barry Ferns. and um and there are other podcasts on that um paul as well it's just three pounds a month and you get loads of other stuff and it also helps me make these i think it's worthwhile to create an audio archive of the fringe Feels like a worthwhile thing to do. I couldn't find any other kind of consistent audio archives that look at um, the fringe from a practical point of view and a performance point of view all across the spectrum. So uh, that's why I'm creating this. So if you like it, give it three pounds a month, and um, it will carry on going. And if nobody supports it, I'll probably just step back uh, in about a year, just step back into the shadows and go. All right, well, we've learned something there that nobody actually wanted this. So uh, anyway, uh, that sinister-sounding activity (laughs) makes me sound like I live in the shadows. Aside, um, let's uh, let's say goodbye. I think that's the thing to say. I uh, have a lovely week, and I'll see you on the other side of the week. Bye, everyone.
12: Join the Patreon. Join the Patreon. Ed Fringe Podcast. Ambient Tales for Traumatized Children. The Podcast. The Barry Anthology. The Barry Anthology. Join it. Join it. If you like what he does, the poor Barry. And just £3 a month. All of them. Join Barry, Ambient Tales for Traumatized Children, the Barry Anthology, the Ed Fringe podcast, join it, join it today. If you like Barry, support Barry, Me Barry's Peggy Goon Be a patron of the arts, of the Barry Arts.